As you guys are grabbing a seat, why don't you open up in your Bibles to the book of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, if you guys don't have a Bible, I think we have some ushers that would love to uh, ush you a Bible. Raise your hand, they'll, they'll get you one. Um, if you don't have a Bible, this is our gift to you guys. Go ahead, keep it. It's, it's yours. Um, it's our way of just saying we love you and bring Bibles with you. It's the whole idea. Bring Bibles. Bring Bibles. I mentioned this past couple of weeks, like... You don't have a Bible. It's one of the best investments you can ever like, go out and purchase is to actually purchase uh, a codex, a Bible, leather, pleather, whatever, uh, to have just as your own that you can read. You can bring to church and study and look it up and whatnot. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is what we're going to look at here. We've been in a series now looking at what we've been calling renovation of the heart. The bigger idea behind it are the various practices that we as followers of Jesus engage in. We do. Uh, again, the big idea behind that is not so much of just busy work, doing more stuff. The big idea behind that is that we want to be like Jesus. Jesus uh, is good. He's our God. He's the one that rescues and saves. He's the one that uh, offers hope for this world and hope for our lives. And he invites us to become like himself. We've been saying that from the very beginning. That Christianity is not just simply something that you say or state or a series of ideas or concepts that you believe. It's not less than that, but it's far more than that. It's a lifestyle. It's a way in which you engage and live and practice the way of Jesus. And we've been looking at a variety of practices that not only Jesus, but also followers of Jesus had engaged in Scripture, but then also 2,000 years of history. Christians have engaged in this variety of practices. And what we've been saying is that part of the problem for us as modern evangelicals or people living within kind of this modern evangelical Americanized type of a framework is that many cases we've been detached from the variety of practices. We just looked at this last week when we looked at the subject of fasting and we kind of asked the question, how many of us on a regular practice level uh, abide or practice this, this, um, this engagement of fasting? And for many of us, it's something we've never even thought about doing, but it's been part of the historical practices of the Christian church. Again, the big idea is we want to become like Jesus. Today, we're going to be looking at really the subject of generosity, or another way you can think of this is stewardship. It's an important part of what it means to become shaped like Jesus. And no, this is not necessarily the money talk, so you can take a deep breath. Uh, you don't need to like, break out in hives. It's all good. We will talk about money, of course, because that is part of the whole process of generosity. But the bigger issue is that God is interested in our hearts and the type of people we become and not just the periodic moment, uh, moment or, or occasional uh, periods in which we are generous with our money. We are ultimately looking at a lifestyle of radical generosity, which is just like God, who God is, what God is like, the way that God operates with us. So with that, what I want to do right now is I want to pray, and then we're going to read the passages, and then we'll get to work. So let me pray, and then I'm going to have you guys all stand one more time. We'll read, but uh, in fact, why don't we just do that right now? How about we all stand? Let's do this. I'm going to reverse it. Totally throw you off. You've got to be on your toes here. Uh, we're going to read the passage first, and then we're going to pray, and then just jump right in. So I want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verses 1 through 5, we'll read a few of those verses and we'll skip on down to verses 7 through 9. And then, like I said, we'll pray and then we'll jump in and get to work. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, says this. Now, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. They did it on their own free will, verse 4. They begged us again 
And again, for the privilege of sharing in the gift of God's people in Jerusalem, they even did more than we had even hoped for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord, then to us, just as God wanted them to. Skip on down to verse seven. Since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love for us, I want you also to excel in the gracious act of generosity. Verse eight, I am not commanding you to do this. Jump on down to verse nine. You know the gracious act or the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that by his poverty he could make you rich. God, we ask you this morning that you just open our hearts to see the real work that you are up to in our lives. Because you love us, because you are invested in us, God, your invitation to us over and over again is to place our confidence and our trust in you. And in doing so, God, you reshape our hearts, our desires. You pry our fingers, our hands off of these things that we so often look to and hope in to provide a degree of comfort and strength and life and satisfaction and joy and affirmation, all these other things. And yet every single time they fail us because they're not you. So we ask you, God, this morning that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to be able to see the profound love that you have for us and that we would trust you. And in doing so, we'd become like you. So we commit this morning in your hands and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Why don't you guys all grab a seat? So as I was thinking about this and kind of preparing for this uh, message, I was realizing like in a lot of ways in our culture, we've really, uh, as a westernized culture and society, we've become more and more increasingly, I think, defined by, to some degree, our, our, our level of entitlement, um, our consumerism. You can even throw in there our narcissism, our inward bent upon ourselves, upon our own self-satisfaction at the expense of other people. And then really the byproduct of, of all of this is accumulation. Uh, thank you, Maria Kondo, for helping us out in that. But then also anxiety, like the byproduct of this inward bentedness towards ourselves, the byproduct of our constant uh, narcissism, of our constant consumerism, of our degree of entitlement, which basically leverages me to cause me to kind of begin to think I deserve more, I deserve to buy this, I deserve to invest in this, I deserve to have this house, I deserve to have this car, I deserve to have this thing, whatever it is. Um, at some point, it leads to this byproduct, like I mentioned, of accumulation, where we just have all this junk, stuff that we don't really need, stuff that at one point had some degree of promise of hope and satisfaction for us, but that's sh the, the, the shelf life on that is really short. And at the end of that, is we have this degree of anxiety where we, we just, we are so still stressed out of our minds, we're not really sure what to do. And a question I really want to ask, and I kind of have this poised out in the question, is is there a practice which we can uh, do that would retrain our self-centered dependence and our endless need to consume and ultimately to elevate others, to magnify God's abundant provision, it's kind of wordy, um, and move from anxiety to joy? Or the Bible word is blessedness. Is there, is there a practice um, that... All of this can be addressed and tackled, and in the process, we be reshaped and reformed. And the answer to that, obviously, because that's what we're going to talk about today, is yes, yes, there's hope. And the hope comes, obviously, uh, not so much in a practice, 
but in the person who invites us into that practice. It's Jesus. And the practice is generosity. How we understand and think about and, uh, and, and actually live out and practice this actual reality called generosity and or stewardship will actually set us free from all of these vices that we find ourselves just plaguing our culture, plaguing our hearts, uh, leading to our degree of anxiety. Because anxiety, on the one hand, of freaking out, stressing because there's something that I want, but I'm not able to get it. Or I'm freaking out because I have what I've always wanted, but now I'm afraid of losing it. Anybody? Yes, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's, the, uh, that's literally the cul-de-sac we live on in our culture. And it's not getting any better because we constantly keep hearing more and more marketing aimed at, poised at our, not just our minds, but at our hearts. You know that, right? That's what the majority of marketing is aimed at. It's not you thinking better about yourself. It's actually trying to appeal to your desires, saying that you need this because, A, you deserve it. B, you need this because if you're really going to find life or hope or happiness or joy or satisfaction or some degree of affirmation from others around you, you have to have this. And so what's being sold to us is not just simply a good or a service, but a lifestyle, right? And Jesus comes to us and says, I'll give you a lifestyle. I'll give you life. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. You'll die to yourself. And then you will come to life in following and pursuing me. So what the gospel offers us is something radically different than what society at large is constantly shoving down our throats. Again, a lot of times people get upset with Christians. They're like, you're constantly trying to force their opinions and ideas. Look, the whole society is constantly doing that. That's what marketing is. It's literally evangelism. It's evangelism for a product or a good or a service. The gospel is so good. It actually offers a radically alternative way of living. And it can be summarized in these two words, whether it be generosity and or stewardship. I want to read a passage uh, by a guy named Donald Whitney. He's one of the books that I've been reading. It's been really good. He says this, that the clock, so he, he addresses the subject of generosity, not just simply in terms of money, but also in time, which I think we could all argue that actually time is more valuable than money, right? Like you can make up more money. You can work harder, you can work extra jobs, you can get side hustles, you can make more money. But you cannot make more time. So I I think it would be safe to argue that time is actually far more valuable than money. And how we steward both money and time says something about your discipleship to Jesus. Here's what he says. The clock and the dollar greatly influence our lives, so we must consider their role in our discipleship to Jesus. God calls us to be disciplined in the use of both our time and our money. These are at the heart of what it means to become like Jesus. It's at the heart of what it means to become like Jesus. It's really important to think about this. Now, we're not saved by how you steward your time or your money. That's not how we're rescued. Again, again going back to this over and over again. Um, and it might sound like a broken record. But again, to make sure that you understand this, that our salvation, our rescue from the plight of sin and brokenness is not based upon any practices you do. It's totally, sheerly, completely based upon God's free gift, God's gracious, God's kindness to us, and us just simply trusting that. But as we follow Jesus, to grow in godliness, what we've been saying is that there are practices that we engage in to grow, to become more like God. And generosity 
is a muscle, like we like to say, that we exercise. So for many of us, if you never exercise your muscle of generosity, it's one of the reasons why many of us, when any time the money talk happens, we bristle, we freak out. We're like, oh, great. The dude doesn't have big, tall hair. and He's not on television. He doesn't have a multi-trillion dollar jet. But he's talking about money, so I'm freaking out. Why do we freak out about that? It's very likely we freak out about it because we have this love affair with that substance. We're afraid of losing it. We're afraid of what might happen. But again, what I want to suggest is Jesus talked about money a lot. And he says often, over and over and over again, the early church recognizes this, and the writers of the New Testament recognize this, that how we treat money as well as time actually is reflective upon our discipleship and our following and our comprehension and our growth in grace and our becoming godly in our walks with Jesus. So with that being said, what I want to do right now is I want to basically take a look at the passages that we just read. I want to draw some conclusions or try to make some sense out of what these passages are teaching us. And I want to move on into just some principles about generosity. Some of these are kind of derived from that Donald S. Whitney book, which uh, then some of them are just kind of adapted from that. Some of them I've just kind of added to or remade. And then what I want to do to finalize, to finish up, is just kind of some practical steps as to how we can begin to implement a greater degree of generosity. So number one, let's take a look at the passages that we just read out of 2 Corinthians and try to make some sense. What do these passages teach us? So number one, these passages teach us that these Macedonian believers, these are people that lived in, in like what would be ancient Greece, uh, they, though they were extremely poor and quote-unquote tested by many troubles, um, they overflowed with this lavish generosity. And uh, again, we, we actually looked at this passage several months ago and what was happening was Paul was taking up um, basically an offering for the Christians living in Jerusalem. And uh, they were Jewish. Now, again, what we've talked about in the past is that the early church, uh, for the most part, had this potential of a divide. And the divide was between Jewish people and non-Jewish people. And so Paul was always concerned that the Jewish people that were followers of Jesus, they would begin to feel that maybe either they were being replaced by these non-Jewish people. And so what Paul was doing, he was, he was, he was encouraging, inviting the non-Jewish people to show by way of tangible gift their love and commitment to the Jewish people. I mean, what speaks I love you more than anything than someone saying, I want to give you my time and my money. Right? You can make an argument about anybody, anytime you want, but the moment they stand in front of you in line at Starbucks, they're like, what can I buy you? I want to buy you breakfast. I want to buy you a cup of coffee. I want to do something kind and generous. I want to bring you a meal. And when that happens, something takes place in your heart. They might have been an enemy before. They may have had some form of, you may have had some form of perception about them. But the moment they do something kind and generous for you on your behalf, it melts your heart. It changes you. Is that true? Unless you're super cynical and suspicious and you're like, now why are they doing that again? I think they're just trying to buy my affection. And right, you got your daddy wounds and all that you're working through. But the point of the matter is that what I want to really suggest is when kind and generous acts like this happen, it transforms, it reshapes our fundamental thinking. And this is what Paul is doing. He's inviting these churches that were filled with non-Jewish people to bring a tangible gift back to the Jewish people there that were suffering, going through tough times in Jerusalem. And so the Macedonians, he says, these guys, even though they were extremely poor and they were tested under extreme conditions, they were overflowing with radical, lavish generosity. The second thing we notice is that the Corinthian believers, this is Paul's writing to the uh, group of Christians in the city called Corinth. 
And he says to them that even though these guys were gifted in many ways, they still lacked this uh, generosity that Paul was looking for. And again, there's all sorts of reasons why, which I'm not going to go into right now by way of backstory. But what Paul was writing to them to urge is say, look, you guys, you guys promised to give this generous gift, but, but now there seems to be a, like a, a sidestepping or backing off of the radical generosity. And Paul is writing to them basically saying, you guys are gifted in so many different ways. You've got incredible knowledge. You guys love me as the apostle, the one that planted the church. I'm thankful for you guys. But Paul basically points out this is an area that you need to grow in, which, again, it shows us that you could be someone that's been a Christian for a long time. And you might have unique abilities and giftings to speak and to communicate and to preach the gospel and to share Jesus and to be an evangelist and to help out with kids and do all these things. But in the arena of actual generosity, whether it be with your time or even your money, is, needs much to be desired. Which, at the end of the day, what it just shows us that we're all on this journey. We're all growing together. We're all learning as to what it looks like to implement the gospel into our lives and to be transformed. And so what Paul says about these Corinthians is exactly that. Third thing is that we know about this passage is that Paul actually believed. This is, this is the thing I love about this. Paul is writing these people because he actually believes that the Holy Spirit is at work in them and that this deficiency... That is apparent in their lives. Paul's confident in the power of the gospel that by writing to them, nudging them, urging them, that he can actually begin to see them begin to grow in this area of generosity. Now, what's really fascinating is what is not mentioned in the passage. That Paul is not guilting them. He's not shaming them. Paul actually even writes, look, I'm not writing to you this by way of a command. Now, again, if you know anything about Paul's life, Paul was an apostle, meaning he planted the church probably there in Corinth. Paul had a very, very important, significant role in the early church. Paul literally could have thrown down some authoritarian apostleship and been like, look, guys, you wouldn't exist without me. So I'm commanding you. I'm shaming you. I'm guilting you to give more. But Paul does not do that. You know why? Because it doesn't work. I mean, it does work. Let me put it that way. It does work. Totally works. Guilt, shame, authoritarian command totally works. I know that because I'm watching the show right now. On Netflix, it's about criminal minds, and they just talked about David Koresh and all these other crazy cult leaders. It absolutely works. However, however, it has no long-term effect. It doesn't really change people's hearts. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about changing people's hearts. Not just simply getting you to do certain things, but getting you to become a type of person that lives a certain way. Does that make sense? God's God's aim is not just for you to do these one-up occasional acts of kindness or generosity, but that you would become the type of person that you would orient the sum total of your life around the gospel in such a way that you are, by definition, a generous, giving person with everything. Now, now that's attractive. That causes people's eyes to be open to the amazement, uh, the amazingness of the gospel. So with that being said, I want to jump in to look at some principles. I'm going to wrap this up. Here's some principles with regard to uh, generosity and or stewardship. Number one, again, I'll just kind of go through these. Many of these, like I said, actually come from that book by Donald S. Whitney. You can check out his book. Just Amazon search it. Um, Number one is that God owns everything. This is important to note with regard to anything with regard to generosity and or stewardship. Every single thing you have right now, it's, it's all because God. God owns everything. God is not lacking. And what this teaches us is stewardship is greater than ownership. So the idea that basically says, I own my house. You don't own your house. I own, you don't own your car. 
Look, you can die tomorrow. And who owns your house, right? I mean, it's not without being morbid, but sounding morbid. The fact of the matter is we don't own anything. Every single thing we have is on loan. Everything. So, again, realizing that our own mortality, the own reality of our own existence, and how fragile it is, and how things can change in any instant, any moment of our lives, it, it helps us to see the bigger picture that God is actually, he owns everything. So every single thing you have right now is because God loves you. He's given you something. So that causes us to realize, okay, if that's the case, how do I manage, or another way to think about it, how do I steward what God has entrusted me, whether it be money, whether it be time, or there are these perceptions, I don't really have time, which is actually just perception. Um, there's all sorts of great books that are written on the construction of time management, so on and so forth, but I don't have time to get into that. Um, but first of all, God owns everything. Secondly, generosity is an act of worship. Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. Let me just read this little passage. It says this, Paul writing, he says, I have received full payment, and I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, he says, these were a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing by God. So Paul does, in talking about the actual giving of a gift, financial gift in this concept, context, Paul is actually saying that, that this is actually an act of worship. It's one of the reasons why we strategically have the giving segment of our worship, uh, of our church, of the practice of generosity, as a part of the worship. It's because we truly believe that giving is not just simply some mechanical thing that we do, throwing money at some sort of system that we're disconnected from or detached from. That, that's, that's not the type of way in which we ever want anybody to think about how we run as a church. Uh, again, we've talked about this a lot in the past, but the fact of the matter is like, we are completely funded by the generosity of this congregation. And so in order for us to do what we do, to make disciples, to help people learn, to follow Jesus, to be trained, to grow in grace, to become fully equipped disciples following Jesus, like, it costs money. It costs money to actually have this place, this building, have lights on, have toilet paper on the toilets, have all the things. All of this costs money. And we have no outside force, uh, forces that are funding this. This all comes from, from you guys. But the point that I would make is this, is that the most amazing thing about when we give, Paul says it's, it can be done in a way that's actually an act of worship. It's an act of worship that Paul even says it's like a sweet-smelling aroma before God, which is directly borrowed from it's an Old, Old Testament hypertext, hyperlink, that basically takes the children of, people, children of Israel back to the people in the Old Testament that were bringing their gifts, and God says, this is a sweet-smelling aroma before me. Thirdly, generosity reflects faith in God's provision. I like to think of it this way. Abundance is greater than scarcity. Do you, you know that God has no scarcity within himself? God is an abundant God. Now, again, there's all sorts of ways in which this can be manipulated and hijacked, and it has, and I think the American creation of the health and wealth kind of gospel, uh, I think those are distortions of this. And, again, you can veer either way. You can either veer into a degree of, uh, that overemphasizes abundance, and my life is to be defined by abundance, or to the opposite extreme. Was that it's all about scarcity. It's all about giving away everything. And, somehow, and both can become distortions. But the point that I would make is this, that God in himself, that when we give, when we live with an attitude, a heart of generosity, what we're demonstrating is that our God is a generous, abundant God. It actually reshapes how we think about God, how we think about our goods, how we think about our life. Because we, when we live our lives based upon everything fixated upon the scarcity mindset, what, what it does is it creates stinginess. Because we look at life as being this 
piece of pie, you know, big pie. And there's only so much to go around. And because there's so many people in the city in which I live in, I, if, if I live with radical generosity, there might not be enough to provide for me. <laughs> do, you, do you realize the very statement of that underscores what I'm saying here? Is that when it's the very opposite. When we live with radical generosity, what we're demonstrating is that my God, my Father, is a radically generous God who loves me and who will provide for me and take care of, of me. Fourthly, generosity reflects your level of trustworthiness. So there's this uh, parable that Jesus actually gives, or a story that Jesus actually gives in the book of Luke. Let me just read this to you. He says, one who is faithful with very little is also faithful in much. The one who is dishonest with very little is also dishonest with much. If you then have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to be given true riches? Verse 12, he goes on to say, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, uh, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. He says, you cannot serve God and, and money. And I think Jesus' whole point is that, look, as we learn how to be good stewards with the small stuff that we have, this is, and this is where kind of we're going to get into some of the practical steps. Because for many of us, one of the number one key reasons why we are not more generous is there's a narrative in our head that goes something like this. As soon as I start making more, then I'll be more generous. That's totally foreign to biblical concept. What the Bible teaches is that start somewhere. If you have very, very little, give very, very little. Or at least begin to pray and ask God, God, what can I be, a, how can I give? My time is very limited. I don't have that much time, but how can I begin to steward what little I have for the glory, the purposes of God, whatever that looks like. And we'll talk about more of this in just a second. But the point that I would make is the idea that oftentimes says the moment I have more, then I will begin to give and enter into that practice. Um, what I've actually discovered, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm old and I'm getting older. <laughs> uh, let's look at that. One of the things I've learned is that just simply does not happen. You want to know why? Because as time goes and progresses, you always come to a new status in your life and you're like, oh my gosh, bills are more expensive now than they were a year ago. Phone bills even more. You know, insurance on my car is even more. Rent is ridiculously even more. And, and I have actually less money today than I did two years ago when I said I'm going to start two years in the future. You will never, quote unquote, have enough to begin to give. It's the same thing like when people are like, you know, we're not ready to have kids. Uh, you know, say you're, you're married and you're like, we're not ready to have. You will never be ready to have kids. You will never, there, like there's not enough books that you can read, podcasts you can listen to, to somehow educate and train yourself. You just got to jump in, in the deep end and go for it. But, and I would say the same thing about giving. Generosity. You will never have enough. You have to at some point just simply say, I'm going to jump in and this reflects our degree of trustworthiness with what we've been given. Fifthly, generosity is a response to love. Generosity is a response to love. Not law, not guilt, not shame, not someone coming over you saying, you have to do this. It's amazing how many people respond to that. Again, I'm just I'm blown away by these, these cult leaders, like in this you know, Netflix video show that I'm watching. It's just like, uh, you know, okay, get this. It's a total side note. It's freebie too. David Koresh, right? Is he still alive? Is he dead? You guys know who he is? 
Okay, David Kresh, you know, he was that cult leader in Waco, Texas. You know, fortunately, Waco has got a new name under the new leadership of their new mayor and may- mayoress, right? Um, Chip and, you, know, you get, anyways. Uh, the point that I would make is that David Kresh has been gone from the scene for a long time. He still has hundreds of followers that are, like, devoted to him, giving money. It's great. Like, how in the world did that happen? So guilt, shame, and coercion are powerful. But that's not the gospel. Anytime, anytime a leader uses their platform, their influence to guilt, shame, coerce you into doing anything, they have abused their position. Rather, the gospel calls us to take a look at what God has done for us and that, let that reshape and reorient our hearts. So generosity is a response to love. Uh, sixthly, generous, or generous giving results in bountiful blessing. This is that passage, like for example, it says it's better to give, it's more blessed. I think I have a slide for it. The next slide. Uh, passages. Second Corinthians this is a great passage. It says the point is whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is an ancient practice that was called telecasting. You know, they have this little satchel um, on your side or man bag if you want to call it that way. And you would have seed in there so that you would cast the seed out. And again, just it's a principle saying that if you have like, you know, a, a, a satchel filled with, I don't know, thousands of seed in it and you just take out like three little seed, three little seeds and you, you cast them like, will you reap bountifully or in scarcity? Well, well, in scarcity. I mean, the chances are of all three of those little seeds actually producing fruit is, is like, I, again, I'm, I'm not a horticultural right, guy. Or, so anyways, I'm, I might be venturing into territory that, has, that I don't know anything about. But the point that I would make is this. I have planted uh, tomatoes before. And I know, and I know you don't always get as much as you end up planting. So the idea, if you, if you sow generously, you will reap generously. Uh, again, there's no guilt, shame. It's just, it's a, it's a principle that says if you are a radically generous person, God will take care of us in radically generous ways. If we have very small amount of faith and or we sow with scarcity or sparingly, it's just the principle that Paul is saying here. Verse 7, each one is to give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, you may abound in every good work. I love this passage because he basically says, God is able to make all grace. Again, Paul's been using this word grace interchangeably with the word generosity. He's, if you're familiar with this passage. So he's, he's identifying the idea of, of radical generosity being associated or co- uh, connected to this concept of grace. And here's what he says. When you sow generously, when you live a life that is filled with generosity, one of the challenges that we're often faced with is, will there be enough to go around after I sow generously? And, and this is Paul's answer. Don't you know God has more than able enough to give you so that all grace will abound? This is Paul's answer. This is Paul's way of basically refraining and coming back to any objection that we have and saying, God will take care of you. God loves you. He loves generous people. Why? Because God is a generous God. Acts chapter 20, verse 35 says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Let me wrap it up with three simple practices I think might be helpful. So, number one. um, In fact, I want to start with number three first. So we'll kind of go backwards. So, number three, which is number one. um, Just to begin practicing generosity. Um, Think about it this way. At some point, you just got got to step in. You got to step into it and actually do it. Not talk about it. 
not envision it as some form of a future action, but to actually begin to step into it and say, I will, I will do it. So for many of us, it's just taking little baby steps. Um, I mean, I, people oftentimes ask me, sh- how, what percentage should be by way of generous, generosity in my life, whether it be financial or, or even time-wise? Now, again, it's, it's going to be different. Um, the Bible talks about a lot of times people, you'll hear them say, well, is it, are we supposed to give 10%? Well, technically, that idea of 10%, oftentimes known as a tithe, is, is actually, if you look at the Old Testament passages of this, it's actually more than 10%. It's like 23%, something like that. But you don't oftentimes hear preachers talk about that. The point that I would make is this is for many people, the idea of giving 10% of all that they have that comes in, or even 23% of all that comes in, is absolutely overwhelming. So again, this is, this is not about overwhelming anybody or causing anybody to have anxiety, panic, hive attacks. It's, it's about looking at your life and saying, how can I begin to practice? So for, for some of us, it's simply just looking at it and saying, starting somewhere, 1%, 3%. And just saying, I want to, for this next year, I want to practice 3% based upon my income that I have right now, based upon what I have within my life. I want to maybe give maybe an hour or two serving Jesus at the church, with at the soup kitchen, at the homeless overflow shelter, or some way using my time and even my money to, to give. I want to be that type of generous person. Now, remember, this is about practicing a muscle. It's about practicing muscle. Because at the end of the day, we want to become like Jesus, who is radically generous. It's not about getting focused on the actual act itself. It's about becoming like Jesus, not losing sight of the big picture. Uh, second, moving back to number two, prioritize generosity. Listen to these passages that are used here. Paul would say uh, their first action was to give themselves to the Lord, then to us just as God wanted them to do. I love the way that Paul identifies this. He prioritizes. He says, look, your first aim is not to simply even sit down and just doing the practice, even though that was our number one point, though it was number, number three. Get the idea. The first aim is actually to give yourself to God. To sit before God. To say, God, how do you want to shape me in this area? What does generosity in my life, in my context, in my socioeconomic you know, arena, having to pay rent or having you know, a lot of bills or having student loans or not having a very you know, uh, high-paying job, God, what does generosity for me in my context look like? I'm going to first give myself to you. And then he goes on to say, and then, and then to us, just as God wanted them to. So they receive something from God. God says, here's what I want you guys to give. And they, out of obedience, out of love, gave. And it became this incredibly testimony of the gospel. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, listen to this passage. He goes on to say, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give, listen, as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God is a cheerful giver. For God is able to make all grace abound to you. But again, the point of emphasis here is as they've decided. This involves some degree of practicality or some degree of actual prioritization. Which means at some point in their life, they sat down and said, this is important to us because it's important to God. Because it's important to God, we want it to be important to us. And so therefore, we need to prioritize this and begin to figure out what will this look like on a very practical level. And then begin to do it. Now, many of us, uh, we, we just don't even think about it. If you do not prioritize it, I guarantee you, it just simply will not happen. And then the last thing I want to just end on is number one, is renew your vision in God. So for many of us, the big thing that we need to really focus on is not so much actually the practice of doing it, not even so much the prioritization of doing it. You need to do a step even before all of those things. And the step that's first 
And most important is for you to just re-understand, have a better comprehension of who God is. And this is one of the reasons why Paul drops this incredibly amazing verse in the book of 1 Corinthians, where he says this in verse 9 again. For you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, he's referring, no doubt, to his presence with the Father throughout all eternity, surrounded by angels, worshipped, loved, adored, the creator of all things, the one who created not only you, framed you, created lungs for you to actually breathe, created oxygen for you to be able to have for your lungs, created every single thing that we have, that the God who is rich in all things, lacking nothing, he goes on to say, for your sakes, became poor, so that you by his poverty might be made rich. Paul's invitation above and beyond any of this is to just pause and sit and meditate and consider and feel the reality and the weightiness of the sacrifice of God for you. Let that reorient, let that reshape your affections, change you into a different type of person. That's the invitation. Think hard, think deep. Feel hard, feel deeply about the sacrifice of God's love through Jesus for you. And let that begin to sink in and make you a type of person that then begins to ask those questions. What should I be giving God? How can I use my time and my money in ways to steward? Because they're gifts from you. Where are the areas? Where are the areas of need in this church family that I can use what we have? Maybe it's not a lot, maybe it's a little, but how can I begin to use these things for your glory and your purposes? So I'm done. I'm going to have the worship team come on up and we're going to respond. I've invited my friend Cameron. He's going to come on up. He's going to share briefly with you guys just by way of a call to response and prayer. He's going to lead us into some time and reflection of prayer as we continue to give this time to the Lord. Why don't we all stand? Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Um, thank you, Brian. That was beautiful. Uh, I, you know, one of the reasons why we're, we want to do these call to prayers is, uh, is that verse in Hebrews that says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And it's Sunday, which ends in the word day. So... That applies to today and every day. Um, I love that, the way it says, as long as it's called today, because it's never not called today. And so as a church, when we gather, we should be able to um, exhort one another and pray for one another and love on each other. And so we want to spend a little time in in prayer this morning and exercise that, um, that, that privilege we have as believers to pray for one another and to encourage one another. Um, and you guys are welcome to jam, jam while I say a couple words. Um, so uh, this is a beautiful um, call to generosity, and it really resonates with my heart, and I feel like I'm just going to get a little lower because I, I can't see you too well. Um, it just really resonates with my heart and, and, and struggling with the poverty mentality that I've had in my life. And sometimes we think that money... Um, is is it, it rules us, you know? And if, if that's something that you're experiencing, I think God wants to set you free this morning from from even a poverty mentality or or being a slave to money. Um, 
you know, Francis Bacon says uh, money is a great servant but a bad master. And if, and if money is leading your life or, or leading your emotions, then, then that's an that's a indication that it's, it's become a master over Jesus' place in our lives. And it's, it's interesting, I was sitting there this morning while Brian was talking and I was looking through my journal. And just a year ago in February, um, I remember something, something in the sermon really spoke about money and poverty. And, you know, I came up in, that morning and knelt on the, on the carpet and, and prayed and asked God to break a poverty mentality off of me. Um, and not because I didn't have money, but because I was afraid of, of even engaging in business that, that year and, and afraid of the, the, the abundance that God was calling me into as a believer and, and the, uh, the abundance that God wanted me to share with others. And I remember that, that morning just praying up here and, and just and crying and, and feeling God breaking something off of me. And, and sometimes it's a continual thing that we need to go through um, having that. So I think this morning, really, I feel like God wants to break off a poverty spirit for some of us. Um, some of us feel like we don't have enough, we never have enough, and out of that we can't give because we don't have. And God wants to recalibrate our thinking to show us how great He is and show us who He is, the abundance that, that He offers us daily, the free breath that we get in our lungs every second of every day. Um, also, I think God wants to uh, encourage some of us who have been serving money and not God to lay down our idol of money. And to, to cast it down at his feet. And, uh, you know, in Matthew 11, it says, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants us to cast our anxieties at his feet. Um, so together as a church, I really, I really wanted us to just open our hands to him and if you could just put out your hands in front of you and close your eyes we're just going to engage with the Lord right now and we're just going to ask Jesus would you show us who you are show us you yourself dying on the cross for our sins and giving your life becoming poor for us so that we could be rich would you remind us of the, of the great lengths you went to to, to give us an abundance Lord, would you reveal to us just, just how much you love us through that action? And God, get our eyes off ourselves and get us our eyes off our situations, off our bank accounts, off of our debts. Help us to see you, Jesus, high and lifted up on the cross, giving everything for us so that we can be rich, so that we can have forgiveness of sins, so we can have relationship with you, so that we can inhabit your spirit that makes us the richest of all Lord and then God show us what we have in our hands show us the things that you have given us God that the gifts the the blessings Lord the talents even the finance that you have given us that we are not in poverty that we are not homeless that we are not um looking to where our next meal is going to come from. And Lord, instead of putting our eyes on what someone else has, our neighbor or anything, Lord, just show us what's in these hands, God. 
And then I just want to encourage us all to look at what's in our hands. And just as the little boy uh, who gave his loaves and his fish, he gave his lunch and Jesus multiplied it, just commit in the next couple minutes to giving that to Jesus, to giving it back, asking God, how can I give out of this abundance that you've given me? And I'm just going to let allow you to keep engaging with Jesus in this as we sing the next song. And, and if you need to uh, just, just come forward and get, get prayer, if you need to cast your burdens at the foot of the cross, I encourage you to come up here and, and do business with God. And uh, if you need to break that poverty mindset, if you need to uh, throw that idol of money down, just, just come up. But just enjoy your time with Jesus.